Welcome to another episode of Sideways, A Life of Wine. As you'd expect on a podcast where we discuss wine, movies, book publishing, all sorts of things, there will be some swearing, there will be some cussing, which means we're obviously having discussions which contain adult themes. Hi everyone, hi Yui, welcome to The Life of Wine. My name is Rex Pickett and I'm the author of Sideways and two sequels, Vertical and Sideways 3 Chile. I have a brand new novel out titled The Archivist. We're going to be talking about wine and literature and cinema and culture, art, or anything that just uh, we digress into. We're going to just let it all hang out on this podcast and we're going to bare our souls, aren't we, Yui? We sure are, Rex. Hi, I'm Yusuf. I'm known as Yui. And I'm going to be the person who is going to interview Rex and extract as much information as we can out of his head about wine. I'm a fanboy and uh, I've been a fan of Sideways the movie and the books for years. So it's a pleasure for me to uh, work with Rex on this uh, podcast. morning rex how are you i'm doing fine we've actually had some rain here thank god because it's been uh, a drought so um, i and i love the rain i love the clouds i love uh, you know weather yeah yeah i know and um that's i think that's two podcasts in a row where it's rained so that's pretty amazing yeah. okay um this is uh, believe it or not episode 16 of our of our podcast and um and this uh, I've come up this time with the idea for the uh, podcast, normally you do, and I quite like my idea, as I tend to, uh, and um, it came to me while I was reading an essay written by one of my heroes, George Orwell. George Orwell um, wrote an essay called Why I Write, and I remember <coughs> reading it uh, back at school, and it had no effect on me, but I read it later, and it had a big effect on me. It was quite an insight into why people write, and I... Um, I wondered if A, you've ever read the essay, and B, would you be prepared to share with us the reasons why you write? Absolutely. I'm happy to talk about writing anytime. I've spent my whole life in the trenches writing, and I did, I did scan the essay. It's not very long, um, but we will touch upon it in this uh, episode. Bef- be- before we do, just a surprise question for you. Just share with me, what are your general thoughts of George Orwell? Fan? Not a fan? Um, to be quite honest with you, I've read wide and deep. I've read the collected works of Carl Jung, all 20 volumes. I've read everything Dostoevsky. I've never read Orwell. And I know that sounds ridiculous, you know, from someone, you know, who has read a lot, but I've never read him. I I know what he's read, you know, what he's written, but um, never read him. Wow. I've just gathered myself off the floor and I've set myself in my desk now. Well, you know, you, uh, <laughs> remember, I, when I, I went to the University of California, San Diego, I was a special projects major. And, and on, in other words, I created my own major and it was specializing in contemporary literary and film criticism and creative writing. So, uh, so contemporary yeah, yeah. literature was really my thing. Yeah. And I always have had a thing, and this will go to writing at some point, is I've always had this thing where if somebody was like the canon, and, and I made exceptions, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Jane Austen, whatever, I tended to 
move to the more the fringe. I've always been that kind of guy, you know, in a way. Trust me. Fair trust enough. me. No, it's, it, I haven't avoided Orwell. I, I'm sure he's a genius, and I'm sure 1984 is brilliant and everything else. And I will get around to it someday, but I, I really am into contemporary fiction. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, he, he was born in... 1903 and died in 1950 so he was not uh, a target of your of your research so that's fine okay well i guess i'd like to start with um um a basic question um how early did you realize that you were going to be a writer or that you wanted to write how yeah, when did that happen? Well, I grew up in San Diego, which is a much bigger city now, and I'll be very brief about it. And it was really a, a surfer stoner culture that I grew up in. So there wasn't a lot of, you know... It, Hang on a second. Did you say surfer stoner? Yeah, surfer stoner, yeah, surfer stoner culture. In fact, I, I actually, not only did I surf every day, but I also built and shaped surfboards. And they were called Pickett's Pocket Rockets. And um, so I was... A sur- Pickett's Pocket Rockets. Yeah, picket. so the pocket That's is a... when you get in the tube of the wave. So Pickett's pocket rockets had my own decals and everything. But, um, you know, and, and so, it, you know, I, I didn't grow up in an environment like some people might be lucky. You had parents who were, you know, more intellectual, more well-read. My father read a fair amount, but um, and I read a little bit, but I never, you know, there weren't really, there were people playing music. They all wanted to be, you know, the next, uh, you know, obviously uh, John Lennon or Paul McCartney or Mick Jagger, but um, I had no facility for that. But I discovered reading when I was about 16 years old, and I really wanted to cleave away from this surfer stoner zeitgeist that I grew up in because I knew it was a nowhere road. And, um, and, I, and I just was mesmerized by books I was reading. And I think early on, D.H. Lawrence had a huge effect on me. And I thought, my God, I could spend my whole life and never be able to do this. But I think I just, I think I, and I've told this story before, in my senior year of high school, I wrote, I went to the principal, he called me in, and he said, you know, Rex, what do you want to be? And I said, I just want to be a garbage collector. And he said, you're, you, you have no future, you're not going anywhere. So I wrote a poem called Mr. Pencilhead, and the school magazine published it. And he and it was it was a, you know a satirical thing about Mr. Pencilhead and he has no life and he's an idiot or whatever. Well, he knew it was him, so he called me back into the office and he goes, you know, very funny, very funny. You know, you still have no future, Rex. So I think I thought to myself, <laughs> the principal calls me in based on a poem, the power of words. I have no musical facility, Yui. I don't even know what a G chord is, whatever. I think that's something you're born with. And I and there was one person in our neighborhood who went on to become a doctor, and he was he actually read, and he also he was very good at if you could put people down in our neighborhood, because our neighborhood the kids weren't really fighters; they were more they used words to put you down. It was more of a verbal kind of derisiveness that was developing. I thought, wow, he has a certain power because he has a grasp of language that can very quickly put people down and make make others laugh, and then they group behind him. You know, they would gang up on somebody. Obviously, it's a form of bullying, I realize, and I'm not, you know, into that at all. But I I realized the power of words. Then I go to the University of California, San Diego, literally 10 miles from where I live, but a whole new world. It was a citadel of intellectuals. And and that's when I wanted, I knew that I wanted to write. And and I think there's another reason, too, is I, I, and this gets on a more personal side, but people are, who know me know that uh, you know I wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm no stranger to bearing my soul and 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 risking uh, mortification and uh, whatever. 
My mother didn't. My mother so didn't. My mother didn't want to have kids. Literally, she had three boys back to back. She didn't want to have kids. She wanted just to live a dream. She married a, a pilot in the Air Force, and suddenly now she was yoked to the earth. And she made it very clear she didn't want to have kids. She was a dutiful mother. She hated cooking. She, you know, and there was there was no emotion in our family at all. They were all everyone was just emotionally shut down. And when that happens is when emotion gets so repressed and so internalized, you you know, a lot of, I think a lot of artists, and we'll get to this, they need a way to access that emotion. And if you don't have, you know, but art is a, is a craft. You know, I can't paint. I can't draw. I can't, you know, to save my life. But I was searching for something around maybe age 15, 16, this emotion that was roiling inside me and trying to understand it. And it was really, I thought, oh, wow, writing will give me access to that place in the unconscious and now we're going to we're going to get to another subject here in a second i needed a way to have access to that repressed emotion and for me writing was the way to get there and ultimately in the end what you're looking for of course with writing is um is catharsis yeah okay well yeah that's that's great is this is this getting Look, too intellectual no, it's not getting too intellectual. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll admit I'm feeling a little uncomfortable, but uh, we'll keep okay. going. I want to explore the DH. I, you, I you can, you can, always, you can always erase thing. this one, you. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. It's all right. No, we'll, you have to finish what you start. Um, DH Lawrence, you mentioned DH Lawrence, and that's a, and that's an author we have in common. I really loved DH yeah. Lawrence when I was a kid. You said that you could have read his stuff for the rest of your life or you're saying you could have just read that no i said i i could i could write did he have on you i could write the rest of my life and never write as good as he <laughs> i mean he he yeah, he, yes, he so. had a he had a real gift and bear in mind for d not to go on about dh lawrence he was writing in longhand you know if you take his i think his second or third novel woman in love which is a very very long novel he wrote five drafts of that in longhand it's sitting in his head you know, he's not even looking at previous drafts. Yeah. You know, when I'm re yeah. when I'm writing, I put the draft up that I finished, and then I I rewrite that draft. I call it a different file name. He's he's just living in his head. These words are pouring out of him. Imagine like a just a, a mountain stream in the spring just pouring down. And and to have that abil that yeah. ability, yeah. it I think it's a combination of there is there is a gift, and um, you can work you can work it, and you can really, you know, you can. Um, you can teach people to write, you can teach people to play music, but you can't teach that gift to get to that place that he that he got to. And and I saw that early on. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember reading um, uh, Neville Shute um, on the beach and thinking, oh, I could write like this. And then I read J.D. Salinger, um, Catcher in the Rye. I thought, yep, I could write. And then I read um, George um, Orwell. Uh, a couple of his books, and I thought, yep, I can write. But then I read D.H. Lawrence um, and Joseph Heller, and I went, no. <laughs> I, I mean, Joseph Heller particularly, Catch-20, I went, yeah. no, you don't know. You don't even know where to start. I found D.H. Lawrence and Joseph Heller to be overwhelming. Right, all right, let's move on. Now, interestingly, birth order. George Orwell, in his essay, cites uh, the fact that because he had a sibling five years older than him and a sibling five years younger than him, he was sort of growing up on his own and he started inventing stories in his head and he started um, actually inventing prose in his head. So I want to talk to you about birth order. Where did you come in your family, birth order? I'm the middle son between two brothers. One is one year one oh, is one well, there you go. one is one year older and the other is two years younger. 
Oh, okay. So it didn't have the same gap. So, um, so you can't you can't say that you were ra- raised in isolation. You were raised as uh, close to your brothers, right, in age, I, and therefore you guys hung out. The three of you. Yes, but I was raised in emotional isolation. Oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. I don't know what to say. I mean, emotional isolation. Well, I mean, to show you uh, no. Seriously, my mother. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't breastfed. We, she, she never hugged me, never touched me. In fact, when my father died, I hugged my mother and her body felt foreign to me. And, and I really wow. believe, and I bring this up, not to be embarrassing or, or to you know, tank our podcast or anything, but I bring it up because I do think, in a, you know, I've, I've seen you know, seven uh, psychoanalysts, and, and I've, I've come to the conclusion, as worthless as most of them are or were, uh, that, that that upbringing may have had a lot to do with my becoming a writer. Okay, so how? How did that drive them to writing? So for George, it was isolation as a child. I guess what you're saying is you suffered emotional isolation. So that isolation for him meant he was coming up with stories in his head um, and then it turned into written prose. For you, what did it mean? Well, did that, how did that isolation drive you into writing? So when I, you know, I've said this before in a lot of interviews, but when I was 19 years old, <clears throat> I got a, a certain amount of money for a car accident I was in for emotional and mental anguish, and uh, and I went and bought the entire collected works of Carl Jung in one purchase, all 20 volumes. In fact, the person who sold them to me said, don't you want to buy volume one and see if you like them? I said, no, I want all 20. I'm going to read all 20, and I did. I spent, I spent six months reading them, and so I went deep into Jung's psychology and psychoanalysis, depth psychology, and I realized that you know, among many things, when emotion is repressed, what's going to happen is it's going to constellate in the unconscious and it's going to cause, um, you know, you're going to manifest behaviors that could be neurotic, could be obsessive, could, you know, it's going to wreak havoc on you if you don't find a dialogue to the unconscious. Now, for Jung, of course, that dialogue was the dream and the interpretation of the dream. The dream is the language of the unconscious. You go to sleep at night, you're unconscious, and you dream and whatever. Um, And so you find that dialogue, but but that's not the only dialogue. Dialogue is also story, it's also fantasy, and everything else. And these give you a relationship to that. And suddenly now, you are, you know, as an artist, you're in touch with that emotion. Now it's what you do with it, you know. And I think, I, it's not like I sat there and thought this out, Yui. It, it sort of just was building me. I, need, I knew I was missing something in my youth, and I wanted to get in touch with that place in me. And I thought art was the via regia, if you will, to that place, because I didn't have, you know, I didn't have, you know, the other facilities in the arts. And and writing, I felt like, okay, I've got a ways to go here to be D.H. Lawrence, but you know what? If I keep reading and keep writing and keep reading and keep writing, maybe I can find my voice, and that's a key thing. I'll never be as good as D.H. Lawrence, and I'm not, of course, but I will find my own voice, and I will keep at it, and by age 19... I'm telling my parents, I'm a writer. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk to the precipice. I'm going to go, and, and that's it. I, in other words, I've said many times that when people ask me advice, I said, if you have a backup solution, you have already sown the seed of failure. I had no backup solution. I didn't care. This is what I'm going to do. I don't care if I die. Okay, cool. Well, um, two things then that come out of that. First is, could you repeat? that uh, French phrase, I presume, because I think that's our word of the day. So repeat that. You said uh, 
Via. Via Regia. So I, 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 it just yeah. means the royal road. So the royal road to the unconscious is the dream. Or to me, it's not just the dream. It's also, it's writing. So writing, you know, when you're writing, you're tapping into the imagination. You're tapping into fantasy. You're creating stories. You're creating characters. And they're, they're not... They're not sitting there right in front of you, you know. I mean, they're they're living in in your head somewhere, whatever. And yeah. once you start playing with that, now you kind of become. I hate to say you become because people say this writers are God. In some ways, they are because you can have them do whatever you want. But in, in some ways, for me, it's 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 a way of um, of uh, having a connection with my imagination. And by having a connection with my imagination, the the walls to the unconscious must become diaphanous. Okay. That's our, that's our other uh, word of the day. I, was, I, un, oh, I understood everything you said to that last word. I just put my head down to make a note, and then you came out with, what was that word? Diaphanous. Diaphanous. All right. Oh, boy. I think I'm going to have to research those and put them in the notes. Okay, listeners, in the well, notes. I know, I'm, no stranger to, I'm no stranger to my use of lexicological arcana. Okay, all right, all right, all right. I better put an end to this. Now, I want to go back okay. to Carl Jung. What made you want to go into a store and buy Carl Jung on spec, we call it here, or on speculation? You just bought all 20 rather than just buy one. What drove you to that? I mean, you explained you explained the driver, but why Carl Jung? How did he come into your world? Well, when I was 17, I discovered books, and I just started, I basically almost quit surfing and just and just started reading prolifically and then when I went to school I just felt I was missing something and I would I would I went to bookstores sometimes two three times a day independent bookstores and one was called Mithras and I used to see these and they're black these big black volumes and they're beautiful and um and I thought and and, and there were some people who were you know Jung was a was a disciple of Freud in fact Freud wanted Jung to take over for him when he retired but Jung broke with Freud back in 1912 when he wrote volume five symbols of transformation and I just there was something about Jung and actually you know it's funny Freud is now totally passe Jung is is more popular than ever so get this and I'm, I'm digressing your your compatriot there Jane Campion a Kiwi is probably going to win the Oscar for Best Picture, Best Director, whatever, and Best Adaptation for The Power of the Dog. She and Benedict Cumberbatch, her lead actor, went to a Jungian dream coach. A Jungian dream coach. I'm, I'm kind of laughing. And, so, and, they make, and they're, they're very open and public about it in order to unlock their unconscious and, and get them to you know go deeper with this story. And I thought, oh my, what does that Jungian dream coach have that I don't, when I was 19, I, I mean, I actually applied to the Jung Institute. I wanted to be a Jungian analyst, you know, but um, so I... Oh, so, so hang on. So they, they did it together, the two of them. I don't, you know, they, it's on YouTube. I think they went separately, you know, separately. but they went in there. And I don't, and she's not a Jungian analyst. She just, she just calls herself a Jungian dream coach. I think, wait a second. I mean, when I was 19, I read Jung. I started, um, and, and this is in my archives, um, I started writing down my dreams, and I started writing long interpretations of them. Probably they were ridiculous or whatever. But I, you know, was really trying to, what Jung, without going into a long thing about Jung, he, 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 he believed that in order for you to become whole as a person, you had to establish a language with the unconscious. He truly believed that ego consciousness had become divorced from the unconscious, and he thought that was a very dangerous place to be, to let the unconscious just you know, run amok. You needed to have a dialogue with the unconscious, and art, for me, is the dialogue with the unconscious. 
Okay, so you could, and this is going to sound really stupid, sorry listeners, so you can you can get into Jung, read his stuff, without wanting to be a writer. In other yeah, words, of course. it's in itself, in itself, it's a thing that will help you unlock your own unconsciousness. Is that right? Well, I mean, you know, reading the collected works is pretty difficult stuff. He, he was a medical doctor, and, um, you know, there are other books yep. like Man and His Symbols and, and others that, you know, kind of... I hate to say, you know, Carl Jung for dummies, but, you know, there are other things, you know, there people have. Um, so if we take, for instance, the great Joseph Campbell, who wrote a great deal about myth and mythology, whatever, the hero with a thousand faces, a famous book because George Lucas used it as the Bible for Star Wars. But Joseph Campbell oh. took everything from that book with his permission from Carl Jung. So Jung begets right. Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell now begets Robert McKee, who becomes this incredible multimillionaire screenwriting guru. And you go to his, and he's basically, but it all goes back to Jung, this hero's journey, act okay. one, act two, act right, three. Right. You, you meet the shadow, you go into the underworld, this, and then there's this, redemption at the end or whatever. So this is, this is about story. Yeah. And I was reading it really, I was reading Jung not for those reasons, like this is going to help me with my writing. I, what I wanted, Yui, was this. Okay. I believe people need a belief system in something. And I'm not, yep. I'm irreligious. I, I don't, you know, you know, for me, you know, ultimately art is my belief system. But I think Jung gave me that real foundation in the sense that I needed a, something to, to really, you know, I needed my own ism, I guess is, is the word. And it, it wasn't yeah. going to be a religion. It wasn't going to be some quack, you know, Scientology thing or something like that. And, I, and Jung really gave me a foundation in understanding, you know, um, you know, this kind of existential plight of, of being on this planet. And you, you do. So in that sense, I am not I'm not an atheist. Um, you know, I really do believe and neither was Jung either. I mean, but we didn't we don't believe in, you know. I hate to say it, but we don't believe in a traditional God, you know, in Christianity necessarily. However, Jung wrote a great deal about Christianity and Christian iconography, you know, uh, and before the wrong people took hold of it, you know, um, it actually was a, it was a yeah. beautiful myth of suffering <laughs> and redemption, which, by the way, is the journey of the ar artist. It is suffering and redemption, yeah. you know, hopefully redemption. Yeah. Okay, so, but there's a certain irony here, because I, I took a mild interest in Freud a few years ago and I and I read somewhere that he only ever attended a movie once in his life. He went to a movie and it was once and it was in America and they asked him what did he think of that experience and he said it looked like just a room full of massly hypnotized people and he didn't like the idea of movies. It's quite interesting that you described a chain of events that went from Freud to Jung from Jung to Robert Campbell is that right? J Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Campbell, and then from Joseph Campbell to Robert McKee, yeah, who is a famous and then from Robert McKee to Star Wars. Yeah. Well, no, Joseph Campbell to Star Wars anyway. to Robert McKee, whatever. I mean, Freud, of course, was okay. was hugely sexist. You know, he had the whole thing of, you know, women and hysteria, and his whole problem. They had penis envy because the clitoris was actually just an unformed penis, and you know, he, he's he's passe. But people oh, forget okay. that Freud. You know, yeah, the interpretation heavy. of dreams, which was his masterwork in the 30s, 40s and 50s. There were a lot of famous artists like Salvador Dali and others. They wanted to see Freud or see a Freudian analyst, or whatever. But also Jung was pretty prominent then, too. But Freud had more prominence. But Jung has Freud has not stood the test of time. He is completely passe. 
but Jung has stood the test of time all the way to your, you know, uh, compatriot yep. there, you know, going to a dream, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, and you say that, you say that all the time to wind me up because you know what I think of Jane Campion's movies. Yeah, I'm not well, a fan, not, yeah, but well anyway. I, I, right. I'm not, you know, not all of her films. But I'm a heathen. I'm but, a heathen. I, but I think I she's made that. two of the greatest films, you know, anyway, so. Okay, right. So we're going to bring it back to why I write. So George Orwell summarized his, his reasons as to why he writes and why he thinks other writers write, which I think is funny. Other writers write. He, he, um, he summarized, summarized them down to four. Sheer egoism was number one. Number two was aesthetic enthusiasm. Number three was historical impulse. And number four was political purpose. Now, I accept that um, George Orwell, the majority of his books are political. I mean, when you do get around to reading them, you'll find he wrote nine novels, of which at least six are political. Right. So, and, and, you know, you've got that to look forward well, to. Well, they're, they're, so, they're, um, th- they're political allegories, is what they are. Yeah, but some are political. Like, he wrote a book called um, The Road to Wigan Pier, mm. which was actually going around and observing okay. Um, okay. Uh, poverty in northern England, and it was a, a mix of a little but, bit but of it's, fiction, but, but it's, mainly not But his legacy works are, of course, political allegories. Oh, absolutely. The two that okay. he's most uh, remembered for, uh, down and out in Paris and London, all that sort of stuff. Okay, so over to you. What do you think of his list? Sheer egoism, aesthetic enthusiasm, historical impulse, and political purpose. Do any of those resonate for you? Do you have any well, extras? Well, let's start, let, you let, we can start with number one. First of all, egoism and egotism are actually two different words. So egoistic just means that you you know, are involved in self. Egotist means you're kind of a boastful person. So you said the word egoistic. I think that there's there's definitely something, you know, if you want to become an artist, you are kind of, you know, you're separating yourself from, you know, what your parents want you to be. You're separating yourself from the world. It, there is something definitely navel-gazing, self-involving about it. Um, you know, and you yeah. and you take you take those kind of criticisms. I don't think that necessarily makes you an egotist. Is it make you an egoist? Where, in other words, that you yes, to be an artist, you have to look inside yourself. You have to be self-absorbed. Yeah. We're not the best people to be in relationships with. I mean, you know, because you know, you have to understand. For instance, as when I'm writing, when I'm writing, you know, the archivist, my new novel, you know, I'm only writing three hours a day, Yui. However. However, it's living in my head all night, and the next morning when I wake up, I, it's like it's like, and that's the same with Lawrence. It's hard to have yeah. a conversation with me until I get done with the novel. So we are self-absorbed, and we have to be. We have to be not only self-absorbed. It's hard to even come out of ourselves in some ways. You know, the, I'm not saying I'm a great artist, but the really great artists, it's hard to come out of it because we we want to stay in that world as much as possible. Because by being in that world, it it opens up new doors, yeah. and then those doors open up new doors so i would agree with i would agree with orwell we 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 don't do it out of egoism but we we have to have that ability in order to be writers or to be artists or whatever yeah and and he's he has said that exactly that's exactly what he says so um so if you when you read the essay um uh, you'll see it yeah you've described paragraph one spot on for him okay what about aesthetic enthusiasm perception of beauty in the external world um, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that, and, and although I, I would want to qualify it a little bit, but, you know, I mean, having the sense of you read, you know, um, we bring a B.H. Lawrence, but there's many people, Julian Barnes and others, you know, there, there's there's such a beauty in the prose, you, you, you have this um, almost 
romance and, and you're magnetically drawn and you think, God, the way they describe that sky or that ocean or that person or that character, you know, you know, they, they use they use language to give me a deeper, more fuller, three-dimensional understanding of things and took me into a world. So I think for, in that sense, wanting to, um, I wouldn't say emulate, emulate, let's use that word, emulate these great writers and get to that. There, to me, there is, I actually read more now than I, than I go to movies because I find more beauty in language now than I'm finding in movies which are turning into superhero stuff, which I know is going to alienate a lot of people. But I, I would agree with Orwell on that. I think that there is wanting to get to, you know, in other words, writing and all art is about, and, and again, Jung talks a lot about alchemy, but it's a distillation. So the alchemists, who were basically a pagan, you know, science is what they were, and many of them were burned and whatever, but they took base metals and, you know, often feces and whatever, and they were trying to alchemize it into gold. Well, that's what we do as artists. So those base metals are just the, the raw, you know, um, experience of our life. But we have to find a way to distill it and bring it into something. To make them more beautiful. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. once you do and you find that, then what you can do, I, I like to deal with Sideways, for example, that I took this raw part of my life, but I, I struck an emotional chord, and I think I found with comedy I could sell despair in a way because that's what I was really feeling yeah. at the time. Yeah. That's the alchemical process, and that comes from Jung. He wrote two books on just alchemy alone. In fact, he, he had, I mean, he's been long since dead. He has the greatest collection of alchemical books in the world, Carl Jung does. So, you know, and wow. people are coming back to, you know, they use that word, al let's alchemize this into gold. You've heard this phrase all the time. But in yeah. a way, there's yeah. truth to it. And it goes back to Jung. You take those base metals. Obviously, it was a, you know, it was a pseudoscience. We know that now. But there was a mythology they were creating when they wrote these great books about it. And, 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 I, and I absolutely agree with that. We're trying to find that kind of aesthetic beauty in, in the art, but it's not easy to do. It, it's a, it doesn't come, that's why it came effortless to D.H. Lawrence, but not to most people. It's, it takes time to get to that place, yeah. you know. Fair enough. Nice one. And, and, and you said exactly what he has said. That's fantastic. What about um, is historical impulse and political purpose his last two? Are they important no, to you? No, absolutely not. I, I try to keep impulse. I, I so, try to keep all even though my stuff is written, you know, with real characters and real places, yeah. and whatever, you know, there's nothing when you read sideways about the politics of that time in, in the archivist. I would never in a million years bring up Donald Trump or something. I you know why? Because it dates your it dates okay. your work. I, I don't I, I'm not okay. against people who want to do that. You, you know, especially if they're writing no. I don't read nonfiction either I read mostly fiction but for me politics or anything that's going to have I mean people might talk about you know emotional politics of sideways that it deals with midlife crises and things but I'm really not interested in world politics I'm, I don't I don't feel that versed in it I think that's something more for op-eds and for nonfiction writers but it date it dates yeah. your work in my opinion Okay, so three and four are not yours. Um, do you have any other reasons why you write? Well, at this point, I'm not qualified to do anything else. So, <laughs> no, okay. I honestly, I so number three, I, no, honestly, so number three for you is not qualified. Not to be sarcastic. <laughs> uh, not to be sarcastic. Honestly, you know, I've written my whole life. I've also made films. So it's it's storytelling. And as you know, with writing, Yui, I've also not only have I written many screenplays, but I've also written novels. But I've written plays, and now there's the libretto for the musical. It's still storytelling. The greatest exaltation that I feel is when I can escape 
and I think for a lot of artists it's the same thing, escape into my imagination and I have a story going. And, and that moment, that feeling of, of it, you feel like um, you, you've, you're suspended above um, the drudgery of time. You're suspended um, above, you, you've actually almost hoisted yourself out of that, um, that quotidian reality that we, that we as artists, we don't want to be in. We want to be in that world. We want to be in that world. Unfortunately, we have to always parachute out of it each day. And then finally, when you finish it, then you got to really parachute out of it. And then you got to show it to people. And that's the part I hate. But when you're in that, that's why I write, is to be in that pure world of the imagination and hope, because it doesn't always happen, hope that maybe I will produce a sideways or something else that moves somebody. So when I get a fan mail, which I get a fair amount of, you know, Rex, I just read sideways. I can't believe it's, been, I haven't read, you know, I've seen the movie 20 times and it just, you know, it's so moving. That's what I live for. And that's why I write is, is to be able to, to connect with somebody. I went somewhere deep. I took a risk and somebody, Hey, you, you wrote me out of the blue. You, you've seen the movie, you read the book it touched you in a certain way that's meaningful to me and that makes me feel i don't care about money yeah. or anything else that makes me feel good cool fantastic well our first transaction was me actually letting you know that uh, that i found your book on third read to be very funny and i just wanted you to know and 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 and, and had you thought and, about writing your fourth book in new zealand and, well yeah. I'm, I'm excited to write the fourth book in new zealand and the thing i like about sideways because the archivist is not a comedy it's a mystery and 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 it's a tragic romance but I do, you know, it's hard to write comedy. If you think about it with novels, there's very few comic novels. They're, they're really mostly serious. It's hard to write comic novels. There yeah. are a few, but That's there correct. aren't many in a way. And, um, and to be able to find that yep. wonderful blend, it's like wine, Yui. Comedy is the ripeness, and the despair is the acidity. Ripeness and acidity. And if you can find the balance, you, you have a great wine. You, you know what, Rex? The sensible part of my brain is saying you should end the podcast now. The, the I don't know, the, the playful or stupid part of my brain is saying, just throw one more quote from George Orwell at him. Um, I, should we go down the sensible path or the irresponsible path? I only go down the irresponsible. Okay. In here, at the end of his essay, he says, essentially, all writers are vain, selfish, and lazy. Well, I mean... <laughs> I, I think that you, I, I don't know, I, I don't, you know, I, don't, I, I think that there might be some truth to that, especially when they get to be, you know, successful. Late, uh, most writers I know, the ones who are successful, they are not lazy. I mean, uh, like a Stephen King, he's anything, but yeah. you, you're at, that's just, they say they're lazy because we only write three hours a day and they're working eight hours a day, but actually we're writing all the time. And in those three hours, we are spent. We are totally spent. Now a painter can maybe yeah. paint 12 hours a day. Yeah. Vain. You know, we're vain because what? We're self-absorbed. We have to be self-absorbed to write. But bear in mind, we're not getting a paycheck most of the time. You know, but I, 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 I look, I'm not vain at all. And I don't know what the third one is. Uh, you know, I don't really, I'm an opinionated. Selfish, it was. Well, you know, yeah. you have to be. You have to be. It, writing, uh, people have asked me, I said, it has to come before family, children, animals, everything yep. if you want to if you want to you have to remove the obstacles in that way and that's 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 not and, yep. and that's not something 
that is is derogatory toward a writer to say they're selfish because it sounds like you, you know you're not a generous person. You'd be surprised. Writers are often quite generous people. You know, you're you're selfish because you you literally that it time is everything. Free time is everything, and however you can get it might result in selfish a kind of a persona or, be, or behavior. But the truth of the matter yeah. is, you have to be selfish in order it, to even have a chance to make it. Okay. All right. Well, maybe in hindsight, I should have ended it at the sensible, but you and I don't do sensible, yeah, so that's true. fantastic yeah. we, that we, we talked it no, through. We're... I actually do believe, I do believe at the end of this, that a person listening to this um, episode will have established why you write, why Rex writes. And so uh, thank you very much for sharing some very personal stuff with us well, today. Well, I mean, honestly, Rex. I write, you know, to, to know myself, honestly. And then the better I know myself, maybe someone else will, will read and say, God, you know, it gave me a greater understanding of myself. Just maybe, possibly. And you know what? That's a good feeling, you know. Yeah, great. Okay, well, thanks, Rex. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Yui. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Sideways, The Life of Wine. Both Rex and I hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed it so much that you'll share this with your friends and go online and rate this podcast. If you have a question for Rex related to the movie, the books, his latest book, anything to do with wine actually, please drop us a line to wine at 158.co.nz. That's wine at 158.co.nz. They want to drink Merlot. We're drinking Merlot. No, if anyone orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any fucking Merlot. No fucking Merlot. No fucking Merlot. No matter how low we go. No fucking Merlot. This podcast is a 158 production.